0: Folks, hey, I've got a guest today, and typically when I have a guest on the show, uh, I don't light my candle, and I was thinking today, why Why is that? What, what's the problem there? Why am I robbing my guests of this precious candle? But hey, my guest today is Sharon Hoddy Miller, and uh, among many other things, Sharon is a, a co-pastor, or a lead pastor. She's a church planter. She's a scholar. She has a doctorate. She's a multiple published author. Um, I have a dear friend, Don Pape. Quick shout out to Don, who has become my literary agent, which is just a delight. It's been so fun working with Don. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, Don's like, "You're talking to Sharon Hottie Miller. He's a big fan, Sharon, yeah. of your work." Um, but the reason I'm going to light my candle today is Sharon wrote this just cracking great book called "The Cost of Control." It hasn't been out that long. I'm I'm losing track, Sharon, because. Uh, I got an early copy, but I think August, mm-hmm. right, was when August it was 16th. released. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's, it's a fairly new book. And um, man, I, I think one of the best books on control, because she just takes this one topic and she just keeps looking at it from different angles. So I, I was thinking, okay, well, if I'm chatting to Sharon, what better day than to light a candle that part of the whole goal is remembering God's presence and, and letting go of control. So Let's see. Today's candle is the uh, Kakadu Plum Company. Uh that's an Aussie candle and uh the scent even though we're heading into the fall, I know some of my listeners are like, "Well, that that's a good reason to do a pumpkin candle." No, it's not. Uh the Mangala. We're doing the Mangala candle. Uh red-blooded man lighting a candle just in the simple uh recognition and confession that God's with us whether we remember it or not whether we feel like it or not whether we think god is or not and what i do is i just have this light to remind me that that god's presence is as close as this light and the other thing i do listeners and maybe you'll do this uh is that god is closer to us than the air we breathe and every time we take a breath just a a reminder uh that we are with god and that can relax us into god's presence so uh, Sharon, on that note, welcome to Managing Leadership Anxiety Podcast. I think your first time on the show. Is that right?
1: It is, even though I feel like I've been with you because I listen to this podcast all the time. But I have a really important question for you after what mm. you just said. Do you not like pumpkin spice?
0: No, Sharon, no. Are we are we ending this early? Yeah. Is that it? Yeah. We're done? No. How? No. How can? <laughs> now, listen, I'm not militant about it. Uh if you, if people love pumpkin spice, we can be well with each other. Just barely, frankly, but we can be well with each other. But no, can't do I it. I might it's...
1: send you. I have a fall candle and this is like my go-to. It's the Yankee Candle pumpkin spice scent. And mm. I love it. Like I, it makes me want to eat the candle every time I open it up. I might mm. send it send you like a little one and just have you mm-hmm. smell it.
0: I'll give it a whirl. I'm an open-minded human. I'm really shocked Um, by this. (laughs) Let me me ask you a question. Outside of your influence, Mm -hmm. what does Ike, uh, for my listeners, Mr. Sharon, uh, what does Ike think about Uh, the pumpkin candle
1: um he is ambivalent he ike doesn't care about my scented candles he doesn't care Mm -hmm. about my decorative you know anything really he doesn't even realize that any of it exists so yeah he has no opinion
0: (laughs) yeah in in the words of great historical american political campaigns um i'm with ike yeah that's what i would say uh, all right, Sharon. Hey, you wrote this book. I, I, if I'm keeping track, I think it's your third mm-hmm. uh, book that you published, The Cost of Control. I had the great honor of getting an early copy and also the great privilege of endorsing, um, which is so funny for me to to actually be asked to endorse something. Um, but it was an honor for me to do it, Sharon, because it's a fantastic book. I think, I think you've done such important work here. Let's just kick off by, first of all, saying um, – What's your beef with control? why Why are you picking on control so much? What's going on there?
1: <laughs> well, I first started chewing on it two and a half years ago when the pandemic hit. And I was paying really close attention during the lockdown to how the people in our church were responding and how Christians on social media were responding. And it seemed really evident to me that what the pandemic had unearthed was a major issue with control. Because I was seeing people, it was like this illusion of control had, had been shattered. And so I was watching people scurry. You know when, um, like with an anthill, I, you know, I've got kids. And so if they see an anthill, they'll, you know, poke it. And it looks yeah. it looks completely serene at the surface. But as soon as you poke it, it's like, a million ants scurrying everywhere. That's kind of what happened with the pandemic. It was like, even within the church, it was this million ants scrambling around trying to build back up this illusion of control. Like, how can I how can I reassert certainty, reassert predictability? And so I'm watching all of this happen in our people. I'm realizing this is a major issue that we need to address as we think about discipleship. But then... I I personally believe my best teaching, my best writing, comes from my own conviction over my own personal sin. You know, I'm I don't like to stand over people and, you know, finger wag as if I have, you know, figured something out over and above everyone else. And so I thought, well, maybe I need to turn, you know, the focus on myself. and that's actually how your your book was really helpful to me was naming control. I had not seen it in myself because I had really misunderstood all the different ways that control can manifest. Because when I think about a controlling leader, I think of someone who is domineering or who leads with like a culture of fear. But one of the things that that your your book helped me to see was other ways that I was trying to control. And, and one of the ways I was really trying to control was through knowledge and information, because we were, you know, leading through the pandemic, leading through racial tension, leading through a polarizing presidential election. Every decision we made was disappointing people. And I started to think that if I could just explain our decisions in the right way, like if I could walk them through The scripture we were relying on or the experts in our congregation that we were listening to or the other pastors that we were consulting if i could you know download that into their brains then i could change them and that's just about control it's like a very sanitized form of control and i thought knowledge and information data scripture whatever was going to empower me in that way and what it did instead was make me more anxious. And and that was the link that that your book helped make me helped me to connect, is that whenever you try to control something that you don't have control over, it's just gonna make you more anxious. And I started noticing that in myself where I was trying to have these conversations with people or I was just rehashing it in my mind. You know, I was going over, if I said it this way, if I said it this way, and it never worked. There was no one <laughs> in our church that, that, who really strongly disagreed that we sat them down and laid everything out. And they were like, oh, I never thought of it like that never worked. But what it did was keep me up at night. So I would be laying awake at night thinking about these and, and agonizing over it and, and feeling anxious about it. And because of of your writing, and, and I've written this to you before, I said that the cost of control is the progeny of managing leadership anxiety. It helped me to see, oh, this is actually how I try to rely on control as a leader. And that was really eye-opening to me. And so I kind of came at it through those two different ways, was seeing the ways that the church has been discipled into this relationship with control, but also realizing the ways that I rely on control. And those are the two sources.
0: Yeah, it's so helpful, Sharon. One of my pet peeves, I think, in some Christian uh, publishing is— is when we take a topic like control, and then the author kind of just bludgeons us, like, "Hey, you shouldn't do that." And y- you know, with with humans that are already feeling, I think, some level of failure or condemnation about our faith, I love the way that you. It feels like you disentangled control from some really healthy things. Um, so I'm just looking at some quotes here. Like you say, humans require some level of stability, security, and physical provision to, to thrive, mm-hmm. and and you actually just put out there it's okay to crave stability um tell us about that tell us about like i've got a few categories here you talk about agency Mm -hmm. um you're really trying to detangle what's healthy and good that can look like control Mm -hmm. but then when we cross into something that generates anxiety Mm -hmm. give us a couple of thoughts on that
1: the question that I get a lot is why do we struggle with control? And there's a few reasons for it. The first is theological. Genesis three, that moment when Adam and Eve reached for you know the fruit of the tree of knowledge and good and evil, they're they're reaching beyond a boundary that God has given them for godlike stature. And anytime we reach for control to rescue us, to soothe our anxieties, to empower us in some way. We are just reenacting that moment again and again and again. And and we're sort of doomed to, you know, that moment sort of rewrote the spiritual DNA of creation in some sense. And so that's why we struggle with it. Another reason we struggle with it is not theological so much as it is cultural. We live in a culture that promises us control through our technology, through our medicine, you know, through the Internet, through our smartphones. We're constantly promised predictability and certainty. But there's a third reason why we struggle with control, and you just mentioned it, which is that we live in a post-Genesis 3 world, but we were created for Genesis 1 and 2. We were created for stability. We were created for security. And so whenever we experience chaos in this world, whenever we experience brokenness, and we long for that to be healed, and we long for people in our lives who are making destructive decisions for them to turn around and walk back towards life. That is not sin. That is not idolatry. I think the language we use about control is very often about it's, it's idolatry. You know, you, you, you trust yourself more than God. And that is true sometimes, but the simple desire for stability and security was put in you by God. And that's that's really, really important to remember where we go off the rails is how we pursue it. So if we think that that we can create that stability, if we can ensure that security, if we are the ones in charge, that's when we reenact that moment again in in Genesis 3. But simply having that desire is not wrong at all. And, And God affirms that desire by sending Jesus to make it right.
0: Yeah. You you talk about our relationship with our smartphone. Like in, in this book, you get really granular about practices and ways of thinking. And you call our smartphone a, a tiny tower of Babel. Mm, mm-hmm. um, and you really flesh out for us, you know, that that God is infinite and we are limited. Mm-hmm. And uh, that that's part of what's going on with control. Talk to us about our technology. Uh, you know, one of the things you go into is just the idea that our smartphone is a portal for... All kind all kinds of knowledge that we can't manage as humans. Right. What's going on there?
1: So as I mentioned earlier, every time we reach for control, we're reenacting that moment in Genesis three, and we're yeah. doing that in so many different ways. There's a lot of different ways that we reach for control in our lives. I think the one that we associate most with control is probably power. But the one that I I would argue is probably more common and was the, at ground zero of the original sin is that craving for knowledge and this yeah. belief that that knowledge is going to empower us. And how I already described, I, I thought that I could use knowledge to control people, but we also go to knowledge thinking that it will empower us, that that it will give us security and stability. And a really common example of this is when you are experiencing some sort of illness. And the first thing you do is you Google it and you go to the internet thinking that all of this information is going to empower me and is going to give me peace. But that has like literally never happened. (laughs) have the expertise to sort through all the information that, that you you have basically all medical data that has ever been you know discovered is, is at our fingertips because of the internet but we haven't spent seven years in medical school we don't know how to you know sort through it all and I had about a year ago I was having some stomach pain and so I went online and I you know looked up all the possibilities. And of course, I decided it is the worst possible thing. You know, I'm dying. That's what this is. And I finally go into my GI, GI doctor and I tell her I've done this research. And I've come to this conclusion. And the first thing she says to me is, get off the internet.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's right.
1: And so yeah, that that's just one example of many where we go to knowledge, we go to information thinking that it's going to empower us, it's going to give us security and stability. And instead it makes us more anxious. And it's it's circling all the way back around. I know this is a really long answer to your question, but you know, we part of it is the internet gives us this God like omniscience without godlike omnipotence and so that's why it is it's so overwhelming to us is is we we are not built to bear we i already gave that example we can't process all the information but but we can't process it emotionally either. We, we were not designed to know everything that is happening all over the world all the time. Only God has that capacity to know all of that without being overwhelmed by it. And so we think that having all this information is empowering us, but what it's really doing is, is crushing us, is what is happening. And that's where I came uh with that that metaphor I used of this tiny babble in our hands is is we have this ability because of our phones to kind of stand over the world seeing everything that is happening at all times. And it's it's giving us this godlike omniscience, as I just said, but but we can't handle it. It's too much for us.
0: Yeah. What what is it about the human? Like we 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 get drunk. We sober up, we say i'm never doing that again, and then we do it again, like as it relates to mm. i've got a stomach ache, and I know that searching the internet medically is a bad idea, and yet here I go, and then I regret it, my doctor says, "Stop doing it <laughs> we, we we keep we keep going back to that like for me you, you know if if i don't do my own tools or really work on it, I keep believing in the moment I can worry my way to peace, mm-hmm. that kind of idea yeah. what, what is it about us that we we're so slow to learn or we're addicted. What's going on there? Part
1: of the reason is that the illusion of control, and, and that's something that I think we are really after. You know, I, I define control in two ways. Control is the ability to impose your will on circumstances or people but control is also about just simply the feeling that it gives us of being in control. And for a lot of us, that is really the, the thing that we are after is simply that feeling. And we know this because of this concept called the illusion of control. And there's been tons of studies done on it where there's almost this human pathology where we will imagine we have control where we do not have any because it it actually makes us feel better. And I think that is why we go to the well of control again and again and again is that it actually can work for a period of time. It can actually make you feel better for a period of time until that illusion is shattered. But we would prefer that that quick fix of predictability or, or certainty instead of facing reality. And that's something for Christians – is such an indictment, <laughs> you know, that, that that we are just as prone to do that and, and even spiritualize it when our our Messiah said, you know, it is the truth that will set you free, and yet here we are retreating into the illusion of control just as readily as anyone else.
0: Yeah, you you get pretty uh, particular in this book, Sharon, and and one of the topics you link is the relationship between control and shame. Mm-hmm. Some of our earlier experiences Mm -hmm. obviously i know genesis 3 is screaming there again but tell us the relationship with uh, control and shame
1: that one was really fascinating i almost did not include that chapter in the book but i came to it through ike actually so control and shame has a pretty obvious link in terms of controlling people with shame. You know, shame is really powerful for behavior modification. You can you can get people to do what you want them to do with shame pretty easily. But there was another element that was so fascinating, and it's something that I would have never come to on my own, but... As Ike has spent the last several years working through a lot of stuff from his childhood, he is the adult child of an alcoholic. He experienced physical abuse as a child and has been really unpacking what that means for him as an adult today. But one insight that his counselor helped him arrive at is the ways that Ike uses shame to make the world feel more predictable. And so shame is a way of, of him feeling more in control in the world. And to me, that does not make any sense at all. But as mm-hmm. his counselor unpacked it, what happens with adult children of alcoholics is when you're a child and your parent is intoxicated or sober, you don't know the difference. You you don't understand you know, levels of intoxication, you just know my parent is treating me this way right now and they're blaming me for it. I, I, I'm a, a nine-year-old can't tease out. They're blaming me, but it's actually because they're drunk. They don't know right. that. And so what a an alcoholic parent teaches their child is you can control how I behave. If, if you would just be good and do what I tell you, then I will I will be a good parent to you. I will treat you well. And they put this this false belief basically in their child that, that you are in control of the people around you. You can manage the anxiety of people around you. And that's why so many adult children of alcoholics become codependent is they believe it is my responsibility to manage the anxiety of people around me. Now, what that translates to is essentially this belief that I'm trying to think of the the clearest way to explain this. Shame in that moment does, as painful as it is, it does create a sense of predictability and control in the world because kids are believing, well, you know, if I change my behavior, then I can keep this from happening again. And the reason that that actually helps children and then later on adults to feel more in control is the alternative is, I control nothing. I control nothing in this chaotic household. It doesn't matter what I do. I'm not in control of this parent. And that is actually a scarier alternative. And so as these kids grow into adulthood, this shame narrative gives them this sense of, of power and influence in the world. Because the alternative is, I can't control these things that are happening to me. I can't control what people think of me. I can't control how people respond to me. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah. And, yeah. It's actually quite, uh, I, I don't know the word for it, Sharon, but it it's arresting to hear it. Yeah. Like the
1: first time I explained it to me, I just was honestly stunned. But it, it makes yeah. a lot of sense that, that shame would help the world feel more predictable to you because if it's your fault then at least you can change that behavior but if it's not your fault then it means you're just vulnerable to the unpredictability of the world and that's a scary thought
0: one of the things my wife lisa has taught me to do she's a therapist and um is is one of the great gifts of a therapist is they pay attention to what they're feeling when someone else is talking Mm. and i'm trying to locate what i'm feeling like part of it is i just want to find i can thank him for doing hard work like there's this overwhelming response to me like man what a uh, i don't know how to put words to it sharon but like what a courageous journey Mm -hmm. But I guess for the sake of our podcast, I'm also thinking in the moment, okay, most of my listeners are pastors. Mm-hmm. A lot of my listeners are church leaders, and this is the story I run into again and again with church leaders is some kind of a childhood experience that, in some roundabout way got us into ministry, mm-hmm. and on the one hand, God has redeemed that pain, but on the other hand, if we haven't processed it, we're being rebeaten up by ministry or Worse yet, we're beating people up mm-hmm. with it. Yeah, um,
1: yeah you know, what's
0: your take one of
1: the insights that I can... And now I wish he was here to talk through this more with yeah, you. Yeah. Um, I
0: think he's coming on next year because he's writing a book yes, on this. and yeah. We're planning on Ike coming on to chat really about it. It's really good
1: and really helpful. I think so. But one of the things that he discovered, as, as we've learned more about him being an adult child and an alcoholic, and one of the tendencies is, is codependency. And I had never... Neither one of us had had seen codependency in him. You know, we don't have a codependent marriage, but what he realized in the last couple of years is that he had become codependent with the church that mm, he believed shoot. it was his job to manage everyone else and that that I was like that.
0: we don't we don't need to talk about that and there's nothing there <laughs> to explore, so don't worry about it, yeah,
1: but that was one of the wonderful epiphanies that that you provided there there was a podcast somewhere where you said something about how the work of discipleship is delegating people's anxiety back to them
0: yeah putting the anxiety back where it belongs yeah making people carry it yeah not in a yeah not in a um uh vengeful way but in a true spiritual growth yeah well, and,
1: and recognizing i cannot be jesus for you
0: yeah Thank God. And Thanks be to God. how,
1: yeah. you know, important it is like our for us to understand that and for us to help our people understand that. But if I try to be Jesus for you, it won't work. But it will just crush me in the process. And so that was a that was a huge eye opener for us. But what we also saw another way that control was playing out in Ike's leadership, because control is playing out differently for us. Yes. For him, the way that it was playing out was this hero mentality that I need to always be on call. I need to always be there. If I don't show up, if I don't do my job, this whole thing is going to fall apart. And there were times where he would actually say that. And I would, I would stop him and I'd say, you need to listen to yourself right now. Like, listen to what you just said. Because I know theologically you don't believe that to be true. But in actuality, <laughs> your theology and your practice yeah. are, are not matching here. And, and he was like, well, you know, and, and he would totally admit all of this now. But he would say, well, you know, if, if I don't show up, like, who's going to do this? Who, who's who's going to make all of this run? And so when you're living that way and because of that you're not having boundaries or you're not observing Sabbath that is a control issue but yeah. it looks like you're laying yourself down it, it looks like sainthood you know you're you're just a really good pastor right but it's it's about control
0: yeah yeah well you know um enough about Ike because this one's hitting pretty close to home he's gonna listen um, to this
1: and be like all right guys <laughs> yeah Ike's like
0: yeah let's edit it but no it I but it's also, Sharon, like you're talking about so many passes. Mm-hmm. Like this is yeah. like I'm feeling activated by it too. These, it, it, I think you're, you're putting your finger on the pulse here. But I did want to um, – one of the gifts of your book is when you get into the control of body image. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the unique gifts you're bringing uh, even as a male reader. Like I think a lot of people could simply say, well, that's a that's a female thing, but it's not. Talk to us about control and body image and I mean one of the great gifts of the book is how you take these categories and just let us sit with it for a while. Get us into that. Yeah,
1: I have a section of the book where I look at different areas of our lives and what it costs us when we try to control it. And and that's where the title yeah. of the book comes from is it's not just that we are reenacting Genesis three whenever we try to control something, but we're also reenacting its consequences. And so anytime we try to control something that God has not given us to control, it will cost us or our relationships in some way. And so I have a chapter where I look at what happens when we try to control our bodies. And our bodies would seem like the one of the few things that we actually can control And we do have profound agency over our bodies. You know, we can exercise, we can eat healthy, we can take good care of our bodies, but we don't actually have control over them. And yet, we live in a culture, again, that promises, oh, yes, you do. You know, here's this here's this product that can help you make your body submit to you. Here's this diet regimen that you can do, and this is going to help you to get to the weight that you want. Or here's these supplements that can make sure you don't ever get cancer or, you know, whatever it is. We're constantly taught that, that we can, in fact, control our bodies. But the truth of the matter is we cannot. We are all, you know, aging. I was I actually just did a radio interview where two days ago where the guy asked me at the very end about this, and the, the last thing I said was, Well, you know, the reality is sooner or later we're all going to die. And that, that was how yeah. I ended the interview, which was really, really great, really strong.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah good. Yeah.
1: But that that is the reality. Is we may experience some success in controlling our bodies for a while. And and I think that's why we think it's possible, is if you're young, if, if you're healthy, if, if you've been able to manage your weight fairly easily, you might not even think you have an issue with control. But that's simply because your body has cooperated with you. But sooner or later, it will not. As as we age, it simply will not. And if we believe that it is the job of our bodies to submit to us, to serve us, and then all of a sudden they're not cooperating anymore, that that our bodies are betraying us, then that can flip into body shame. It can flip into body resentment where we become disjointed persons, where we almost see our body as kind of an enemy to our flourishing. And that is has been literally the source of all sorts of Gnostic philosophy for thousands of years where the body was seen as this lesser part of the the human person. And so I I thought that was really, and you're exactly right, it's not just women, it's men as well.
0: Sharon, you know, we've gotten together a a few times and and heard each other and, and, uh, you know, here you are on the podcast very comfortably talking about control, but you have not yet survived the gauntlet of leadership anxiety questions. So uh, without further ado, here's a few for this season. Okay. Let's see. Uh, Sometimes we can be the last to know when we're not okay. Okay. Who in your life knows you're not okay before you do? And then related to that, how do they know?
1: Well, it would be Ike. He's he's the one who knows. And he can usually tell... I'm actually very transparent. If I'm not okay, it is immediately apparent. Okay. But he knows usually... If I just let out one really big sigh, <laughs> and he knows, <laughs> yeah, he knows. Something. I could be several rooms over, and just, <sighs> and I can hear him go, "What's wrong?" <laughs> okay. So it's definitely my husband. Okay,
0: very good. In, in your leadership, you and you and I get church planters. You co-pastor a church. So in your leadership, where do you keep running into yourself? Like, is there a trait? that you wish you could break, that it's hard for you to break?
1: There are many. I still, I wrestle with wanting to engineer outcomes. I wrestle with letting people, trusting, trusting other leaders in our church, letting them make mistakes Or or maybe it's not even them making a mistake. I think they're making a mistake, letting them do that. But one thing that has really plagued our marriage is we are leading together and we have really had to figure out that dynamic because I'll constantly ask Ike questions about the areas that he oversees because he's readily accessible to me at all times I will ask him questions that he knows are not really questions. You know, they're rhetorical or they're leading somewhere. And that has brought work into our marriage in a way that has been really unhealthy for our marriage. And we've had to work really hard to have firm, clear boundaries around when are we going to talk about this? And and what is even in my lane? you know, to talk about. And that's been something that has been very, very hard for me.
0: Man, I'm going to jump into the gauntlet. I've never done this before. But as I'm hearing you say that, I'm thinking of uh, my dear friends, Jeff and Sherry Surratt, who wrote a book Mm. called Ministry Together. uh, Mm. Because there's so many times in their marriage they've served on a church staff together on various levels, including lead pastor And yeah, the story that sticks out to me from them is um, they decided to, they were living in South Carolina at the time and they decided to get out on a boat. And as long as they were on that boat, they were not going to talk about ministry because that's all they ever talked about. And the boat broke down. They ended up having to spend the night on the boat and they didn't know what to say. They just had run out of things to talk about because for years, you know, ministry had infected their marriage. So yeah, it's, man, I really admire you guys. It's a, whether you have a formal role or not, it's such a challenge, um, serving together with your lover, you know, right. Like that's being in business and, and, uh, and marriage together is a challenge. All right.
1: Yeah. We have done it imperfectly. Of course. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yeah. Of course. Um, you know, Sharon, as you think about your family of origin, anytime we do family of origin work on the podcast, it's never about blame. It's always about getting clear on what's been handed down and what what you want to do with it, but what might be a family trait that has really helped you in your life and what might be a family trait that's gotten in the way?
1: That's a great question. In terms of, it's actually easier for me to answer that second one because my books have been, in many ways, working out generational sins. And and I wanna be really clear. I actually come from a wonderful family. I my parents are incredible. They love Jesus. They raised me in a home where I felt incredibly loved. And so it's really the reason it's easier to name the The negative stuff is there's so much positive, mm. actually. I I feel it has never been difficult for me to accept God's unconditional love for me because I've so perfectly experienced it for my parents. And so I, I have a really wonderful family. But still, you know, they're humans. And so my first book, Free of Me, which is essentially about self-forgetfulness, was about the ways that... Insecurity is fueled by self focus, which is not often how we think of insecurity. We think of insecurity as being about low self esteem, actually. But I went through a phase where I was really insecure, couldn't figure out why, and eventually realized it wasn't because I felt badly about myself. It was just I was very self focused. And so that was coming from my mom's side of the family, which she would readily admit. But Control is more coming from my dad's side of the family. And again, he, his dad was actually an alcoholic and his brothers, a bunch, he's lost four brothers and his father all died from alcoholism, which is just, you know, catastrophic. And he really wrestles with wanting to control, wanting to predict, wanting to plan everything, and it does not produce peace in him. You know, as as soon as something does not submit, you know, he can plan this perfect vacation, and as soon as one little thing goes wrong, it's, like, all ruined. You know, it doesn't matter that we're all together we're all having fun. And so control is, is definitely something I've watched steal my dad's joy in a lot of ways so those are the two things that I've kind of inherited but overall honestly I mean my dad considering what he came from he is just miraculous he's he's just an incredible father right
0: yeah it sounds like yeah he did the hard work for sure
1: mm-hmm. yeah
0: I think all of us struggle we've got three questions to go by the way we're on the home stretch here but I think all of us struggle with an inner critic And, Mm -hmm. you know, I think our inner critic has a gospel. Um, And, yeah, in some ways, my life journey is believing the good news of Jesus over the news of my inner critic. So to that end, I wonder if you'd be willing to fill in the blank. Uh, Mm -hmm. Here it is. What if I were at least as blank to myself as God is? What, What would be the blank for you? What if I were at least as blank to myself as God is to me?
1: Hmm, that's a great question. You know, this is probably going to be a very different answer than most. I actually don't really struggle with the inner critic as much. That is, for whatever reason, just not. And, And some of that, I think, was probably because of the spiritual work that I did with Free of Me was really taking the power out of that that voice and that that focus. And so that's something I genuinely don't struggle with anymore. I think the thing now that i'm I'm realizing is probably the opposite is instead of grace is more of like a thirst for holiness. I, I think some of my overreaction to, you know, the hardship of ministry, of being rejected, of being judged is I show a lot of grace to myself. But sometimes I think that can flip into like a cheap grace mm. almost. Yeah. And I'm in a season where I'm realizing I've swung too hard in the other direction. And I really, yes, God shows us so much grace, but he also calls us to train like athletes. Mm. <laughs> and I, I'm realizing if I want to be in ministry for the long haul, I need to be get serious about training like an athlete, not from a place of of shame, but, you know, out of a thirst for righteousness and, you know, being conformed in a way that produces that longevity.
0: Oh, that's a fantastic answer. Uh, some of the work I'm doing now is um, about the gap that every Christian faces between what we believe and what we experience. So we have these mm. deep beliefs about God, but we don't always experience what we believe. Would there be? Um, would you give us an example of a gap for you between a, a particular belief and an experience?
1: I should have thought about these more before. I know you <laughs> ask these questions all the time. Oh,
0: I, I prefer it. I prefer it unfiltered. <laughs> and um, unlike radio, yeah. like like so-called dead space is great on this podcast. So no problem. <laughs> dead space. Yeah.
1: I think I'm in a, I'm in an interesting season where I'm going to be really honest. All right. So I travel a lot for my job. You know, we both travel. We're speakers and I speak at a lot of conferences. And one of the things that is very weird about that work is you're in churches where you're worshiping with other believers, and that's really amazing. I, I love experiencing worship with with other believers. But the thing that is strange to me that I'm honestly processing, so this I'm processing this like in real time with you yeah. right now, is how worship is identical like at every church that I go to. it's It's basically the same songs played the same way it feels very canned, even though I know that it's not. And because of that, it has created this really weird emotional disconnect with me and worship right now where it feels like, where is the fresh wind, you know, of of worship? You know, I'm, I'm getting on stage and I'm preaching about the importance of worship and the goodness of God, but when it comes time to actually worship, with other believers in these settings, I feel a little bit of disillusionment, honestly. And that's something that I don't really know where it has come from, but it's something that I'm processing and, and talking to God about a lot right now.
0: Yeah, a great answer. Yeah, final questions the one we end with all our guests. Um, where recently or where in your life have you felt fully and completely loved?
1: Hmm. A lot of places, actually. I already mentioned my parents, and Ike is a phenomenal husband. He really pursues me and and lays himself down for me. But I've also, in this season of ministry, as I mentioned before, I've never struggled with believing that God loves me. But in this season of ministry where there was such high – pushback and criticism and rejection I found myself really retreating into my belovedness Mm. in a way that I'd never really needed before and found it just so exactly what I needed and so that has been a new experience, which is so funny to say since I've been a Christian my whole life, but I've, I've really clung to my belovedness by God in a way that's been really meaningful to me in this season.
0: Folks, the book is Cost of Control. My guest is Sharon Hoddy Miller, church planter, a co-pastor, author, but as Sharon inferred, she also is a traveling speaker. She's available uh, to speak at retreats and events. So Sharon, if people want to engage you more or or maybe inquire about you coming to help out, how should they do that?
1: So I'm easy to find on Instagram, just Sharon H. Miller. There is a link in my profile for speaking and you can contact my speaking agent that way. Great.
0: Thanks for coming on the show.
1: It's been great.